This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Homemade bombs used in Iraq and Afghanistan have meant more U.S. soldiers with spinal cord and genital injuries. And that's led to more infertility among veterans. Since 1992, Congress has banned the Veterans Administration from funding IVF. But last month, Congress voted to allow it temporarily. Advocates like Tyler and Crystal Wilson of Golden say it's a good first step. They join CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Tyler, Crystal, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Tyler, let's start with how you got to this point. You were in the Army in Afghanistan with the 173rd Airborne Brigade. It was 2005, and you were trying to rescue some fellow soldiers when you started exchanging fire with insurgents. You're now paralyzed below the waist, but at the time, did you know you were seriously wounded? Um, from the first bullet that struck me, it paralyzed me from the waist down, and instantly I knew that this was a a serious injury um, that uh, I didn't I didn't know the extent of uh, how extensive it was but it was uh, I knew right then and there it was like a light switch was flipped um, and I couldn't feel anything from the waist down and you guys met because Crystal was your physical therapist and when you started thinking about perhaps getting married um what did you each think when you considered having children? Um, we we knew each other for a number of years and, uh, you know, became friends and just uh, one thing led to another. And and uh, early on, we, we both knew that we wanted children and we knew that IVF would be our only option um, due to my injury with a spinal cord injury. Um, and we had those, those long talks early on, you know, just how, what would be involved and what would that look like? Um, and both of us, you know, we, we both wanted children. Um, yeah. And, um, Crystal, you went through IVF or in vitro fertilization earlier this year before Congress passed this legislation. But some clinics around the country already offered discounts to veterans. And that's including the one you went to, the Center for Reproductive Medicine in the Denver area. It's helped dozens of veterans. And we should say you're now expecting a baby in March. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but even with the discount that you got, IVF is really expensive. How much did you pay and how did you pay for it? We ended up being lucky, like you said, our clinic, Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine and Dr. Schoolcraft, uh, discounted their services by 50%. But that still left us with the surgery that Tyler had to have for his retrieval procedure and the medication costs and all of the work after you get the Pregnancy, positive pregnancy test, the pre-scans, all of that kind of stuff. We had our friends started a GoFundMe account, and we also got some grants for medications and a grant through BabyQuest Foundation, and we were still left with paying $14,400 out of our own pockets. Would the VA have picked up the whole cost if this law had been in effect? The VA would cover all costs related to IVF. And um, you've traveled together to Washington. You traveled and made a lobby on behalf of the legislation that allows the VA to pay for IVF. Infertility isn't something people usually talk a lot about to other people. Were you comfortable telling your story? 
um, early on, it was definitely uh, a difficult thing to to talk about. You know, there's a lot of guys that are out there, and I don't blame them, you know, one bit for injuries like this that you don't want to talk about infertility issues. Um, it's a very private matter for a lot of people. And uh, But when it comes to infertility for uh, uh, veterans and in this whole whole program, um, we felt compelled to uh, speak out and speak up about it because um, there's a lot of people that are out there that don't even know that this is an issue to begin with. And uh, when we talk to friends and family and, you know, well, wouldn't the VA cover this? You know, they, they're they absolutely shocked when we tell them, no, it's, you know, this is all our, 100% of, our, of it is on our own. And uh, everyone we talk to, it's, they're absolutely shocked and uh, flabbergasted that this is not covered due to uh, 100% related to combat-related injury. Crystal, how did you feel about, you know, having to broadcast some of your personal issues um, in front of Congress? One of the things that Tyler and I always got our strength for in order to be able to do this is the fact that in the past, Congress has voted this down based on numbers. There hasn't been a whole lot of faces put in front of it, and... I admire Tyler more than I'll ever be able to say for being able to put his story in such a personal topic out in front of the media, out in front of Congress, in front of the public. And being next to him and seeing his strength, it made it easy for me. And it was something that both of us stand so heavily behind because we don't want any other couple who sits in these same seats, who has a combat injury serving this country and gets all of their medical care covered from the time they return, and then they're told, oh, but there's this giant gaping hole. So Tyler and I will not give up fighting for making this coverage and whatever it takes for us to keep the story going and keep the issue in the forefront, that's what we're here to do. Yeah, Crystal, um, it's only really a temporary solution, you've said, because Congress didn't provide funding, um, nor did it eliminate the ban on the VA funding IVF. What's your ultimate goal here? Our ultimate goal is to eliminate the ban, to have a permanent solution so that any veteran sitting in Tyler's seat, man or woman who serves their country and gets sent off to combat, is wounded in service while protecting the families that we are fighting for, has the right to have a family of their own. One of our friends, um, Matt and Tracy Keel, they've been huge advocates. They really started this effort. And one of the things that they always like to say is that war changes families. It shouldn't take away your opportunity to have a family. And war potentially took away mine and Tyler's chance to have a family of our own. We were lucky enough that we had amazing people behind us. And we, I mean, we charged up our credit cards $14,000 because it meant that much for us to have a family of our own. And it was something that we were willing to fight for. We don't want any other couple to have to fight this same fight in the future. And we will stand behind whatever it takes to make Congress recognize that this needs to be a permanent solution, not just a two-year fix. And uh, I understand there are about 2,000 couples that would, or 2,000 veterans that would be affected. Um, would you look for a permanent stream of funding, too, from the, you know, from the federal government? Um, yeah, the end goal has always been to 
make this a medical coverage just like anything else, you know, like what I have to deal with on a daily basis with a spinal cord injury. You know, I'm issued a, a uh, wheelchair and they pay, they cover medications and anything else I need. But when it comes to this, it's just stop and it, there's no coverage whatsoever and you're just essentially on your own, you know, for all of it. Um, and the, the solution that we want is that this is covered just like anything else. Active duty troops are covered for IVF and other fertility treatment, but you're not eligible because you're medically retired. Would you have been eligible for services when you were still in the Army? I was wounded in 2005. To my knowledge, at that time, I wouldn't have been. Um, But there, there have been programs started up for IVF for active duty. Um. Unfortunately, like at the time when I was wounded was uh, May of 2005. I was discharged from the military in September 2005, and I was still an inpatient um, by the time I was discharged from the military. And the doctors didn't even know the extent of my injuries. You know, I was put on the temporary disabled retirement list. You know, they didn't know if anything would come back or what what was going to go on. So it was just time would tell. Um, And with any of the uh, active duty uh, IVF programs, you know, the second you're discharged, you, you can't use that, you know. Um, and it's, it's really a hard place to ask somebody to, oh, you've just experienced this uh, traumatic injury, you've lost your legs, whatever it may be, and uh, you have this tiny little window, if you want, to try to have... Uh, children by IVF or whatever. It's not a time yeah. when you're you're thinking of having children. Yeah, absolutely um, not. Some conservative groups who oppose IVF have argued against this because embryos are often destroyed yeah. in the process. How will you convince the federal government to keep this going in the face of that kind of opposition? One of the things is that we always say is it's not the federal government's choice to decide whether Tyler and I have a family. Combat wounds are the reason that IVF is our only option to have a family of our own biologically. And it shouldn't be Congress's decision to determine whether Tyler, who came home wounded and injured in service to this country, is allowed to have a family of his own. That's the decision between Tyler, myself, and our doctor, and nobody else. Crystal, Tyler, best wishes to you with your new baby, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Tyler and Crystal Wilson live in Golden. They spoke with CPR's Andrew Dukakis. They successfully lobbied Congress to use funds from the Veterans Administration to pay for infertility treatment. Crystal is expecting their first child in March. Still ahead, Doc Holliday, who became famous after the shootout at the OK Corral, actually spent a lot more time in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's November 8th, and the CPR News team is gearing up for election night. Join CPR and NPR Live at 6 p.m. And tomorrow at 10 a.m., tune in for Colorado Matters post-election show. But for now, a bit of an election day reprieve to the Old West. 
It only lasted 30 seconds, but the gunfight at the OK Corral in Tombstone, Arizona, is seared into American memory. That's how it was depicted in the 1993 film Tombstone. Afterwards, Lawman Wyatt Earp and his gambling outlaw friend Doc Holliday became mythical figures. Holliday spent a lot of time, though, in Colorado. Well, you can learn about that in a recent historical trilogy. Victoria Wilcox spent more than 18 years studying the Georgia-born dentist-turned-gunslinger and is considered an expert on his life. Her historical novel, published as a trilogy, is called Southern Sun, the Saga of Doc Holliday. She's with us from South Carolina. Welcome. Hey, thank you, Nathan. So nice to be speaking with you. Uh, Doc Holliday, the legend, ranks up there with other Wild West icons like Billy the Kid, Jesse James. Uh, Newspapers at the time wrote about how he'd rather, quote, die in a gunfight with his boots on than (laughs) die in bed. Why did you want to study this man who's already so well known? Um, you know, I was introduced to his story actually in Georgia. I came across a wonderful old house that needed to be saved and restored and kind of fell in love with this house and then found out that it was owned by the uncle of the famous Doc Holliday who played there as a child. And I, I thought that was an amazing connection. And then I discovered that the house also was related to Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind, that Doc Holliday had an amazing family connection to Gone with the Wind. In fact, the girl who became the model for Melanie in Gone with the Wind was his cousin. Her name was Maddie Holliday. And the family tells us that they were um, very close as children and sweethearts when they were teenagers and had even hoped to marry at one time. And um, I thought that was amazing. I thought that was the old South meeting up with the Wild West and falling in love, kind of Gone with the Wind meets the movie Tombstone. And I became very fascinated with the beginnings of his life and how this Southern boy born during uh, born just before the Civil War and being raised during the war and, and Reconstruction in Georgia, how he ended up becoming a Western legend and uh, began researching his life. And I had a lot of family information that I learned in helping to restore this old home and the families I'd connected with and learned that he was, as his cousin Maddie said, a much different man than the one of Western legend. And I determined that I wanted to write about his life as his family would have known about him. So his life from the beginnings and with sympathy. And I, I figured that I would use the existing biographies to to dramatize those for the Western portions of his life. But as I got into the writing of what I knew was going to be a very long story, an epic story, I found out that the the lines on the timelines I was making based on these different biographies, the, that the timelines didn't match up and the facts didn't match up. And as I went to fact check the biographies, I found out that most of the facts weren't facts and, and were make-believe, and that the real Doc Holliday was, as his cousin said, much different than the man of Western legend. I thought it would take me a couple of years to write a story. As you mentioned, it took me 18 years to research and write it because I had to go everywhere he'd been to find out who he really was. So that's the genesis of my story, and I was fascinated to find out that he spent more time in Colorado than he did anywhere else in the West. That's right. Much more time in Denver than he did in Tombstone. So he's really a famous Colorado figure. And many people may not know that. I mean, and so let's go back to his his time in Georgia. He was trained as a dentist. So how did he end up traveling west? 
<laughs> he was raised. Um, he had a, a military father. His father had been um, an officer in the Mexican War and the Indian Wars and the Civil War. So he was raised by a military father and a very talented, musically inclined mother. And after the war, he went to Philadelphia to be trained as a dentist at the Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery, which there were only three schools in the country at the time that taught dentistry. And so he went to that school. He was very well educated. The list of the books he had to read was just astounding. Um, he didn't just pull teeth. He did really what would be considered now kind of the beginnings of cosmetic dentistry. He did some beautiful work. Graduated from that school. He went home to Georgia. Now, the legends of his life say that he left Georgia because he found out after dental school that he was dying of the lung disease called consumption, which we think was tuberculosis. That disease had not yet been diagnosed during his lifetime, so he was never diagnosed with tuberculosis, but he, he seems to have had many of the you know, of the symptoms of that. And so the story says that he was diagnosed with consumption and he needed to move to the high, dry plains of the western frontier to heal his his life, to save his life. And so, you know, we know where that is. That's Colorado, right? That's Lots right. of consumptives went to Colorado, <laughs> but he didn't go to Colorado. He went to Dallas, Texas, which is, for anybody who's ever been to Texas, Dallas is not the high dry of anything anywhere. It's it's along the Trinity River and more prone to these epic floods from the Trinity than it is to dry air. It was lower in altitude than Atlanta and just as humid. And the year he went, it had been closed down by a yellow fever epidemic. It was actually famous in the papers at the time for being the second least healthy place in the country to live right behind the bayous of Louisiana. So, you know, nobody would go there for his health. And so, so I'm trying to write the true story of his life, and I had to disregard that legend and see what else might there be out there, and found an old story told by uh, his friend, Bat Masterson, somebody who, lawman Bat Masterson, who had a big career in Colorado himself. And Bat told a story about Doc getting involved as a young man in a shooting on a little river in South Georgia. And that as a result of that shooting, he had to leave the state quite quickly, and he went to Dallas, Texas. And interestingly enough, that story was told by many people, not just Bat Masterson, very early in Holiday's life, repeated by lots of people. You know, the facts told very similarly every time. And so that that is the story that was told by people who actually knew him and close to his so own lifetime. So he ran for a shooting, not so much for consumption, you say. Yeah, I, I would say he was going for his health, but yeah. mostly <laughs> running for his life. And that but, consumption story actually didn't start until 50 years after he died. So regardless of so why, that's, that's legend. Yeah. Doc moved to Dallas. I mean, once he was there, he eventually slid from being an upstanding member of the community, a, a dentist, to an outlaw. How did that happen? You know, I would blame that on Texas's gambling laws. When Holiday was living in Georgia, um, gambling in a saloon was a very common practice in Georgia. Everybody did it. Um, the mayor of Atlanta owned the biggest saloon in town, and all the local men would go in there, the local politicos, and they'd talk about how to get the damn Yankees out of town. And, you know, they'd play cards and they'd drink. And so he took that culture with him when he went to Dallas, Texas. And what he ran into in Texas was a, gam a drinking and gambling law. It was against the law in Dallas to drink in a what they called a, or to play cards in what they called a house of spiritus liquors. So he wasn't allowed to play cards and drink at the same time. So here he's, he's in Dallas and he's actually practicing dentistry and getting arrested again and again and again for doing what was normal in Georgia, which was, you know, having a whiskey and playing some cards. And so that that began to ruin his reputation. 
as a Dallas dentist, as a fine, upstanding man. Actually, when he first went to Dallas, he he joined the local temperance league fighting against public drunkenness and joined the local Methodist church. So he was trying, but he had some longstanding habits from Georgia. And then um, he got fired from his position as a Dallas. He was in practice with another dentist. He got fired and uh, he tried to set up a new practice. And this was following what was called the Panic of 1873, which was the first, the country's first big economic depression, and life was very difficult. So he traveled to a couple of different towns trying to get himself going again in practice. And so I think he was having a lot of trouble getting his business going, and he continued to play cards and finally ruined his reputation, and he just had to leave town. And Well, there was and a shootout he, yeah. at the time as well, wasn't there? It, newspapers well, at the time took that shootout pretty lightly. <laughs> But I want to play a clip. Uh, We've recorded this uh, newspaper clipping of the day. It's the Dallas Daily Herald writing on this New Year's Day shooting. One of the first, I believe, with with Doc Holliday. Dr. Holliday and Mr. Austin, a saloon keeper, relieved the monotony of the noise of firecrackers by taking a couple of shots at each other yesterday afternoon. The cheerful note of the peaceful six-shooter is heard once more among us. Both shooters were arrested. Now, that sounds pretty lighthearted, but your research found that this shooting was nothing like being lighthearted at all. Yeah, and you know it, it's it's where legend takes us in the wrong directions because legend, you know, biographers had found that story, and so they just took that at face value. This funny little ha ha. He must have been laughed out of town. I was a paralegal before I was a novelist, and so I knew where there was a legal arrest, there'd have been a paper trail, and so I was able to follow that paper trail to its beginning. He went into a saloon, and he and the saloon keeper took a couple of shots at each other. We don't know what caused it, except the saloon keeper was allowed to carry a gun to help protect the place, and a guest in the saloon was not, so he would have been in the wrong. Both of the shooters were charged. The saloon keeper was let go, probably because he was allowed to have a gun, and Holiday was charged with with intent, with assault with intent to murder. Pretty so, serious. no laughing matter. Very serious. If he'd been found guilty, he didn't kill the guy, so it wouldn't have been a death penalty, but he would have spent um, two to 20 years in the state penitentiary. And the the case came to trial at the new Dallas County Courthouse that was there. We don't know what he said in his defense, but we have the result. He must have made a good defense because the jury found him not guilty. He was not laughed out of town, but it was a very, very serious matter. And so, um, but he really had wrecked his reputation in Dallas. So he didn't leave Dallas because he killed anybody, but he left because he really couldn't continue in business. And he he went west. And but what's interesting is from this time in Dallas, from here on for for a couple of years, he just is acting like a desperate man. He travels to the far west of Texas. He goes all the way down to the Texas border. Actually, does some dentistry um, across the border at a Mexican um, presidio down there. Um, and he acts like somebody who was on his last years. And we think that it's likely in Dallas that he maybe found out that he had consumption or he finally faced this diagnosis and he acts just desperate. But something happened after those two years. He, he didn't die. And it's like anyone with a chronic disease or a long-term fatal disease. You know, at first you're trying to deal with the, the diagnosis and then you find out you're not dead yet and you've got some life left. And he, he sort of had to figure out 
now how do I live? What does he do? With this disease. Yeah. <laughs> You're tuned to uh, well, Colo- Oop, Colorado Matters from CPR News. We have so much of Doc Holiday to get to. Uh, we're speaking with Victoria Wilcox. She's a Doc Holiday expert and author of the trilogy of historical novels called Southern Sun, the saga of Doc Holiday. Doc Holiday spent more time in Colorado than anywhere else in the West during his lifetime. So let's get to Colorado. He spent let's time in Denver. Uh, and, and of course, prior to, to that, the, the shoot at, at the OK Corral, he was there. But uh, he returned to Colorado multiple times, Denver, Trinidad, Pueblo, Leadville, Gunnison, Salida, Poncha Springs. Why does Doc yeah. Holliday show up over and over and over here in Colorado? Okay, well, number one, he went to Denver, and very quickly, why he went to Denver, during his troubled times in Texas, he finally did take a shot at somebody and killed somebody, and he had to get out of the state. And yeah. he traveled to Denver, which was, this was 1876 Denver, this, the territory had just become a state, and he traveled there, and he changed his name. He took an, a pseudonym, an alias, Tom Mackey, that was the name of his favorite uncle back home in Georgia, and he lived, instead of as a dentist, now he's, a, now he's traveling under an alias, so he can't practice dentistry, and he instead becomes a pharaoh dealer at a Denver, a big Denver varieties theater and, and gambling What's house. What's Pharaoh? Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a board game that's not played anymore. Um, it's uh, laid out on a big green base table, and you have to gamble on which number is going to come up next in um, a cage of, of, of numbered balls. So it's a gambling and, uh, game. Yeah, it's a gambling game. You just bet on what's coming up next, but it takes a good sharp mind because you have to remember what's already come up. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to gamble different levels. Um, very complicated, extremely popular at the time, and it was dealt by a pharaoh dealer. And so he was a pharaoh dealer, and this was a paying job for him in Denver. And he stayed in Denver for just a few months that first time until he got into a knifing incident. He'd stopped carrying his pistol. That turned out to be dangerous, and he carried around a great big knife. Somebody confronted him, and he pulled the knife, and he left town, went back down to Texas. But he ended up back in Colorado. This is the cool part. After Texas, after Dodge City, after the shootout at the OK Corral down in Tombstone, Arizona, he needs to escape and get to a place of safety. Well, he lived in Colorado before. So he goes back to Colorado. And you mentioned lots of the places that he went to. He went to Colorado looking for safety. And within days of his arrival, he was arrested on the streets of Denver by a bounty hunter. Probably somebody sent from Arizona to take him back there. And he, uh, it became huge story in the Denver paper, went by the wires all over the country. And daily, people were following this story of the arrest of the famous and infamous Doc Holliday. And was he going to be extradited back to Arizona to stand trial for crimes in Arizona? And it actually, an extradition order was sent from Arizona. And Governor Frederick Pitkin... Read that extradition of Colorado. He read that extradition order and he said he found it to be flawed. It was missing a required signature, so he was not required to honor it. So he denied the extradition order. He could have requested a new copy of the order be sent. And he didn't. And we think that likely that extradition order was sent in a flawed state so that when it arrived to him, he would not have to honor it. So maybe a couple of governors here acting together to keep Doc Holliday safe in Colorado. Why would they bother to keep this man safe? Because down in Tombstone, Arizona, he hadn't been just doing shootouts on the street and gambling the way the movies show. He was actually working to help stop a threatened war with Mexico. That's a very long story, and it doesn't have to do with Colorado. But the governor of Colorado was keeping him safe. So he stayed in Colorado for almost all the rest of his days. So at the time, he was was still suffering from consumption, right? 
Yes. And so he traveled around Colorado to, you mentioned Poncha Springs. Mm-hmm. He, he went to all of the places in Colorado that had Mineral Springs resorts as a way to try to heal himself. You know, this, this story that he, uh, some people tell a story that he had a death wish. He wanted to die in a gunfight. Well, he may have wanted to not die of consumption, but he didn't want to die at all. He traveled from one Mineral Springs resort to another, hoping to heal himself. He was a very young man. He was only 36 when he died. So for his very young years, he was trying to find, you know, find some help, find a healing. We think he went to Wagon Wheel Gap, which is now near Creed. Um, definitely Poncha Springs. There were warm springs out past um, Pueblo and certainly Glenwood Springs, his most famous Which is resort. where he ended up. So tell us about the death of Holiday in Glenwood Springs. He said to be buried in a cemetery on a hill above the city. He is. Um, he died on November the 8th, today. In 1887, he was 36 years old. He did eventually die of consumption. Um, the movies show him in a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, and there was no sanitarium there at the time. He actually was in the Hotel Glenwood, which was a very swank place. Um, staying there at the Hotel Glenwood, they had a nurse and a doctor on staff because people did go there for... They didn't actually go for the spring water in Glenwood Springs. They went to the Yampa Vapor Caves. And so he would have been daily descending down into these extremely hot, yellow steamy, filled vapor caves trying to breathe in this vapor to save his life. Uh, He was too debilitated by the time he went to have that help him. But that's why he went to Glenwood Springs, and he stayed in this wonderful hotel. He died there on uh, 10 o'clock in the morning on November the 8th, and he was buried at 4 o'clock that afternoon. And here's the interesting story. He was buried, according to the newspapers there in Glenwood Springs, in Linwood Cemetery, which is Glenwood's famous cemetery, and it's up on a very high bluff. You have to really do a strenuous hike to get up to this high bluff to be buried. And he was buried somewhere there. And they're not sure where he was buried. They kind of lost him. And so rumors went around. And, and a very they early story him. in Glenwood <laughs> They lost him, yeah. A very early story in Glenwood Springs say that he was moved. And so people thought, well, maybe he was actually buried down in the town and then moved when the cemetery, you know, moved up there when the cemetery was later created. But it was already established. And other people who died the same day he did were also buried in Linwood Cemetery. Another story said, well, it was November the 8th. It must have been snowed in. And maybe they couldn't get up to the cemetery. But it wasn't. And as I just said, other people. People were also buried there the same day. So, you know, where did he go? Did he get up and walk away? There is a memorial there in Glenwood Cemetery dedicated to him. It's not his grave because they don't know which grave his was, but he did die there. And so he very rightfully has a lovely memorial there to his life. I think he was originally buried a little past the main part of the cemetery, a little farther up the hill is what would have been the indigent cemetery. So, you know, if you didn't have family near to buy to buy you a plot, you might have gone there. But there's an old story out of Georgia, that after his death, he was removed from Colorado and brought all the way back to Georgia and reburied in his hometown in Griffin, Georgia. And so Griffin, Georgia, also has a memorial to Doc Holliday in that their cemetery. He was possibly buried there. Victoria, uh, be, yes. <laughs> we, we, do have, we do have to end it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here with me and Nathan. Victoria Wilcox spent more than 18 years studying the Georgia-born dentist-turned-gunslinger John Doc Holliday. Her historical novel, published as a trilogy, is called Southern Sun, the saga of Doc Holliday. She joined us from South Carolina. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Just ahead, we're going to go to the dogs, speed sled dogs. The sport is gaining quite a following. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. There's a world of dog-powered sports that goes far beyond mushing huskies in the Iditarod. Instead, imagine specially bred sprint dogs teamed with humans on foot, skis, bikes, and more. Sprint sled dogs can reach speeds close to 30 miles an hour. There's no sport like it because you are trusting your dogs. I can't explain that in words. Dog Power Movie is a new documentary screening at the Denver Film Festival later this week. Kale Kasif Peonia is one of the filmmakers and a sprint mushing competitor. Kale, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for having us. So uh, most of us have heard about the legendary 1,000-mile Iditarod dog sledding race between Nome and Anchorage, Alaska. How is sprint dog sledding different? Well, there's one obvious difference. You know, Iditarod is an expedition. It's a multi-day camping trip that's really extreme and only 80 people in the whole world actually do. Whereas thousands and thousands of people and pretty much anybody can get involved in a modern, what we're calling kind of a modern dog-powered sport, because uh-huh. it's as easy as jogging with your dog. Modern. So it's modern in terms of brand new. It's, it's... In the last 20 years, all around the globe, especially in the last five years, this new sprint kind of racing on dirt trails and all around the country world is just growing up so fast. And the old Iditarod style, they're struggling with even like having enough snow to get through the race. So tell us about the dogs that are bred for sprint mushing sports. Sure. So save for your household dogs, which can also do it. So we don't want to exclude them. Remember, and, and when I go to races, I'll often see household dogs there. The real elite racers, though, are using the German short hair pointers, which are hunting dogs with short hair, very climate adapted. They can run in a little warmer temperature, run extremely fast forward. And there's also a greyhound blend called the Grayster, which has become really popular since the, about the mid-1980s, but especially in the last five or six years. And you found out the hard way that huskies aren't always the best sled dogs. Tell us how you got started with this sport. Sure. So I actually did see my neighbor in Paonia run with some dogs uh, down a trail, pulling him on his on it. And I thought, man, I definitely want to do that. I want that connection. <laughs> and I already had a Siberian husky who was more of a backcountry skier from my Rico, Colorado days. I love powder skiing. So I thought, I'll get another Siberian, and this one will want to pull and want to be a world champion. I just thought that in my heart that she'd want to win. And I got Misty at eight weeks old. And about a year into it, I realized, you know what? Misty's just not a sprinter. And so I went on my journey of discovering who has the fastest sled dogs in the world. And that's part of what we cover in the movie. So you went through a series of dogs, or you just looked online? Or how did you find the dogs that you settled on? That's a really good question. I, once I realized that Misty was not going to be my world champion ski jerk dog, I realized I need to just start asking everybody I know. So a, a musher friend in Aspen, Colorado, Ed Franny, he's, he's also a realtor. He did that Iditarod years ago. He said, Eggle Ellis has the fastest sled dogs in the world. You should contact him. And I sent Eggle an email. He's a Swedish-born musher living in Alaska at the time. And I wrote him a long note. If you were just able to sell me one of your dogs, I would take immaculate care of this dog and try to become a ski jerk champion. And he sold me Quinny in 2011. Quinny. And the mighty Quinn... To this day, is still one of the best forward dogs in the world. So, uh, there's also there's there's skiing with these dogs. There's running with these dogs. They're they're being pulled with these dogs. Talk about the uniqueness of this. It's not just a, a sled, right? That we all think about the sled and snow and huskies. Yeah. And so, in the modern dog powered sports, Australia has a huge dog scene without snow. New Zealand, Luxembourg, Brussels. All these countries that don't have snow have discovered that they can just race on dirt trails. They're shorter races, five kilometer, six kilometer, seven kilometer, because it's a little warmer temperature and without the snow. But it means that it's open to everybody. If you have a mountain bike and a bungee cord and a harness for your dog, you can compete. If you have 
shoes and like to run on a trail with a hip belt and a bungee line, you can compete too. So it opened up in the last several years, this whole entire universe. And it, I'm getting emails from all over the world, from Bogota, Colombia, from different countries where you'd never think this sport is growing, where it is actually growing. So how fast do these dogs run? How fast are these races? Well, they're arguably the fastest athletes in the world. So if your dog were the to dogs. run down, uh, yep, uh, if your dog were to run down a trail without you, your dog would want to be in the high 20s to mid 30s miles per hour. With you, you're going to slow that dog down. Even on a mountain bike, you're often going to slow that dog down. So the fastest can across runners, that's, that's uh, sprinting with your dog over maybe a three-mile course, they're pushing you just about four-minute miles. So can across, so that's where they're attached at your, at your waist, is that right? Yep, you wear a special running belt that's adjustable for you and transfers the weight to your, your legs so it's not affecting your lower back. There's a bungee line that goes to your dog's specially made harness, and that's it. That's all the equipment you need, little running shoes and a happy dog and you're down the trail. And there are pictures posted at cprnews.org. What does it feel like to be pulled by a dog team? Well, this is the special part that I was chasing. When I got into it with Misty, I really wanted to feel that interspecies connection that I'd read about. The best mushers in the world say that there's something like living, breathing, moving art that happens when a dog team that's well-trained and happy moving down the trail pulling you and everything's in sync and everything goes well. I wanted that. And with one and two dogs, you can achieve that so rapidly because it feels just so – it's like this special thing where you're both going for the endorphins that you love. Humans and dogs share that passion together. Huh. We both generate endorphins. We both love to exercise. A happy dog that's sleeping on the couch after a nice run is like one of the most satisfying feelings for dog owners. And every dog owner who takes their dog to a dog park and wears them out knows that feeling. So imagine where you're both getting into together and you both get to share in that. It deepens that already really special connection. What kind of commands do you use to communicate with these dogs during the race? Right. So there's a big school of thought on this, how much you should talk to your dogs in the race. You should. The big theory is you shouldn't say much. A well-trained dogs should just be able to go straight ahead. But if you're giving the left and right, that that's either going to be a G or a ha. The right's the G, the left's the ha. And that's the classic old school commands. Uh, bring it home is a popular command. And that's more the American concept of mushing where you just before the end of the race, you tell your dog team, bring it home. And then, then they think about the dog food bowls and the water bowls. Now, the Europeans, they have, they have different commands. And, and since I film so much, I sit on the trails and I hear all these different commands that I have to kind of process and think, okay, now is this their culture? Is this their region? And so there are almost a sing-songy pattern that I've heard. We have a clip of this, one of these European calls. This is 23-time world champion Lena boyson hiltstead of Norway. Does this create some sort of bonding then between you and the, and the animal? Yeah, so I discovered this on the trail. You you won't have this at the start line or the finish line. You have to be somewhere in the – she's a, uh, a sprint racer at the four-mile, four-dog, all-out. She's won more medals than anybody alive. And it, there's no surprise that she wins because of the love she has. I would want to run fast when I hear that. I mean, that calls up the dogs. And that's something that the Norwegians and the, and the Swedes and Finns, Scandinavians, they do from the time that dog's a puppy. In the special moments of training, they start to instill these little calls in their dog's genetic makeup. So when that dog hears that in a race, that's my mommy back there. Let's go. Let's pick it up. You're listening to Colorado Matters on uh, Colorado Public Radio. We're speaking with Paonia dog musher and filmmaker Kale Casey about his new documentary film, Dog Power Movie. So how long does it take to train these dogs? I mean, it seems if they love it, they're going to be able to do it pretty much right away. 
Yeah, it's it, you'll find out that it, the kennels that breed dogs for for their their teams they're looking down the road for always having new dogs in about two years. The puppies pick it up right away, mm-hmm. and a lot of these dogs are born to pull. But you know, even in Colorado State and parks around the city here in Cushman Park and different areas, you'll see dogs pulling their humans on the leash. That dog's ready to pull too. My so dog dogs, does. <laughs> yeah, dogs instinctively. I mean, we spend a lot of time in our culture restraining our dogs. And I think one of the things we're trying to show in the movie is, hey, if we give you information about these other sports that are out there, it might just turn into a sport for you where you can actually harness some of that power and have fun with it. So how large are these teams? Is it uh, a whole series of people across the, across the country, across the states doing this? Yeah, there's clubs everywhere. Okay. And uh, here's a really good example. Quebec, Canada, our neighbors up to the northeast. They had no club formed in 2011. Now they have 180 urban mushers. These are mainly professionals, young folks who are really energized, really active. They love to work hard at work, and they love to go on the trails and bike tour and can across at the end of the day and have happy dogs. And that kind of pattern is, is happening all over the world. Urban mushers, you, you say that. So it's something you can do anywhere, essentially, not yeah. just in the mountains. Yeah, working folks. I mean, because really the big kennels are a thing of the past. Where mushing has turned the corner is that suburbia has grown up everywhere. And so having a lot of dogs isn't practical anymore. But everybody already seems to have one or two dogs in their life. That's a very American, very – these dogs are a therapy, right? Like just to get through a normal election – for example, that we're in right now, you kind of need your dog to give that love just to process what's going on. And so people are always tend to have one or two dogs in their life, and now they're just turning it into more of an adventure sport. You often hear about cruelty to greyhounds at racetracks. Doesn't this kind of competition, this, this pushing the animals and encouraging humans to, to, to win, is there a, a worry about abuse? The, you know, there are documented cases at the very biggest kennels of more dog neglect than anything else. When you look at the international race scene that I go to, there are race veterinarian checks. The minute you get there, you're not allowed to compete without a, a vet checking all of your dogs. If there's any sign at all that those dogs are malnourished, underprepared, not being treated well, any kind of cuts or anything on them, there's no way not only that you're racing, and there's no way that, that you're not going to get blackballed in the sense of the, the federations are so strict. And that trickles down to the clubs. So I've been impressed. I traveled the world. I just got back from Czech Republic. There were 550 entries of this race. And I saw just amazing, well-taken-care-of dogs. You can't help the outliers. I mean, obviously, those guys deserve punishment. But that's really these bigger, more obscure kennels that are more in the training for the big races. So what happens if a dog gets tired during the race? You know, here's the beautiful part. It's pretty obvious if your dog's not having fun and going forward. And everybody in the audience doesn't want you to finish with a tired dog i mean so i step aside then and, yeah you just huh. and folks do do that i mean i have numerous interviews that we haven't published yet on from filming mushers who are saying like you know if my team's not looking good i'm gonna scratch or if my team's not looking good we're just gonna slow down and we're gonna come in 50th who cares and when you and these are folks who should be competitive when you, when you look at what they could win but they're satisfied with just having a good run and that's what really the deep joy in the sport is not winning it's when your team comes back feeling good at whatever pace they can maintain. That's a beautiful thing. And briefly, how many years can these dogs perform at peak performance? Is it a short period of time? They probably start peaking around two. And I've heard of lead dogs with exceptional skills running still in the eighth and ninth year. Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you, Nathan. Kale Casey is a sprint dog musher and producer of the Dog Power movie, screening at the Denver Film Festival on November 9th and 13th. We've posted the trailer and photos at CPRnews.org. Just ahead, using insects to turn food waste into animal feed. Yeah, that's actually a thing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. 
Maggots could soon turn food waste coming from Boulder area restaurants into animal feed. The ecologist behind the idea thinks it could be profitable and even save far off ocean ecosystems. CPR's Sam Brash takes us to the project test site. Right now, mad agriculture is just a greenhouse on a farm in the low foothills of Boulder County. Philip Taylor slides open the front door. Yeah, what's that smell? So it's actually the fermenting food in here. Taylor is a ponytailed ecology researcher at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's also the founder of Mad Agriculture, which makes him a bug farmer. He has millions of black soldier fly larvae living inside the greenhouse. He lifts the lid on a plastic barrel to show me their food. It's leftover ginger from a local juice company. And so we intentionally pickle it, which does a lot of stuff. It preserves it. This has been here for three weeks. Next, Taylor stacks the waste in trays and adds a packet of cardboard. So in each one of those little packets is about 900 eggs. Those eggs hatch into voracious maggots. In two weeks, they'll gorge themselves on food waste until they're the size of a paperclip. Taylor then dries them so they can be ground and added to animal feed as a protein supplement. And that's why he thinks his bugs could save the oceans. Yeah, so what most people don't realize is that small fish out of the ocean are the backbone of commercial feed. And when I ask people, when is the last time you've eaten a herring, oftentimes no hands go up, not realizing that in the chicken, pigs, and fish that we eat, the protein that those animals are raised on were fish out of the ocean. Small fish like herring or sardines might not be very charismatic, but they're critical to many other forms of marine life. And in recent years, many of their stocks have plummeted under human pressure. That's the reason that Taylor wears a trucker hat with a blue back herring on it. The fish was once common to his home in Maryland. I grew up on the Chesapeake Bay, a once vibrant ecosystem. Part of my vision is to restore that by creating better proteins in the market that don't jeopardize ecosystems. And so in order to alleviate pressure on ecosystems, we've got to create better alternatives for consumption that alleviate that stress and let those ecosystems be what they want to be. Boulder's Universal Zero Waste Ordinance is key to Taylor's plan. Since September, it's required all businesses to separate out organic material like food waste. Right now, that material goes into composting systems. Taylor thinks his maggots could create more value from the same stuff. But for that to work, he'll have to scale up his operation. Our hope is to build a facility that can process 15 tons of food waste per day. Right now, we process 500 pounds a week. So Taylor uses part of the greenhouse to figure out how to breed flies on an industrial scale. Welcome to the breeding area. We go into a long sealed room where thousands of flies swarm fluorescent lights. This is where Taylor's training as a rainforest ecologist came in handy. He chose lights that display ultraviolet patterns on the fly's wings. He says that's what cues them to breed the next generation of maggots. Even if Taylor can figure out the science, he still faces regulatory hurdles. Bugs cannot be fed to animals yet. That said, within the next year, there'll probably be approval for insects as an animal feed. One of the companies pushing the new regulations is EnviroFlight. The Ohio Venture has planned to sell insects as commercial animal food since 2009, and it's currently conducting safety trials with the Food and Drug Administration. The company expects approval this year. Meanwhile, Taylor has a short-term way around the rules. The other nuance to it is, is that if you sell these bugs as a supplement or like a chicken treat, 
it's completely wide open. In other words, pet chickens can eat maggots just like pet lizards can eat crickets. That's let Taylor pitch his idea as a startup. Woody Tosh is the founder of Slow Money, an investor group that funds local food projects. He organized a pitch session for Taylor. Tosh says it's too early to tell if mad agriculture could actually make money. He's just coming out of the R&D phase to try to beta site a municipal level facility. So definitely the people who put the capital in are going to have to be people who are willing to accept the risk of there's a lot of business elements of this that have to be figured out over time. Taylor has raised $75,000 and is now after another $75,000. He's using that capital to conduct a feed trial with a local chicken farmer. If it works, he'll plan to sell the dried maggots as a high-end treat for backyard chickens sometime this month. My overarching vision is to really become the Patagonia of animal feed. But before he gets to that, he'll have to prove that his bugs mean business. For CPR News, I'm Sam Brash. You can find more stories by Sam Brash and all the CPR reporters online at CPRnews.org. And that's our show for this election day. Remember, if you've not yet voted, you can return your ballots or vote in person at a polling center until 7 p.m. this evening. And stay with CPR News throughout the day. Starting at 6 p.m., CPR and NPR will be live. And tomorrow at 10 a.m., tune in for Colorado Matters post-election show hosted by Ryan Warner. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.